This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. It's been two months since a train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, spilled toxic chemicals into the environment. Since then, officials have deemed the town safe, but residents held a protest on Monday saying otherwise. We want to keep this in the forefront of the news because they still don't have independent testing. Well, like one of the signs says, kids' lives matter. And, you know, generationally, these guys are the ones that are going to be growing up in this community that are going to be affected by this. And again, we just don't know how long these effects are going to last. CNN reported that a group of CDC researchers fell ill while investigating the possible health effects of the disaster. In the center of the controversy is Norfolk Southern, the rail company responsible for the spill. Last week, the Department of Justice announced a lawsuit against the company for violating the Clean Water Act. Meanwhile, increased concern over train derailments has led to a bipartisan push to improve rail safety. After the break, we head to East Palestine and check in on cleanup efforts and testing. And we take a look at what can be done to prevent a similar disaster from happening again. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. This message comes from Wired. On Wired Politics Lab, you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts. Let's start the discussion with East Palestine resident Greg Masher. Greg, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So you you live in East Palestine, but right now you're in West Virginia living in a relative's home as cleanup continues. What was your experience directly after the spill? After the spill, it was on a Friday night. Um, We just thought it was a derailment with a terrible fire. We didn't know about the chemicals. And Saturday, um, my daughter and I coached basketball. We had some basketball games, and then we came back to town and just 
they were still putting the fire out and working on it, and we didn't think nothing of it. And then Sunday we started hearing the rumors and people talking that they were going to start evacuating people if they wanted that the chemicals were on the train. So all that weekend, we had no idea what chemicals were on the train, what we were breathing in, and the smell was just unbelievable. Can you, can you describe the smell for us? It's hard to describe. It's like a metallic. You could taste it. You could t- to say that you can taste a smell. It was that bad. Um, you coughed. It made your eyes water. It made your nose run. It's just I've never smelled anything like that before in my life. Tell us about your household. Who lives with you? It's my wife and I, and we're raising our three granddaughters. We've had them since birth. Um, they're nine, eight, and seven right now, and. They, they love the town, and they love where we live, and it's just terrible it's happened. So you started to experience the smell. You said your, your eyes watered. It was almost metallic tasting. Did you experience any immediate health effects? Yes. That Saturday we had basketball games. We were gone for most of the day. We got back to town probably around 7.30 Saturday night, and by Sunday morning my granddaughters started developing rashes on their feet, um, on their chest, on their arms. And like I said, the runny nose, the coughing, it, I didn't get the rash, but my granddaughters all had it. I would imagine as, as a grandparent who, who loves these little girls. It's terrible. It's, the emotional part of this is just unbelievable. Um, I worry for them constantly. And we, eva- we evacuated that Sunday and I'm afraid to go back. Last week, you wrote in an op-ed in The Guardian saying you don't believe the town is safe, even though officials are saying it is. Why do you not believe what, what's being, what you're being told? Because they lied from the very beginning. First, we didn't know what was on the train. And then Norfolk Southern came in and tried to cover everything up. They were bringing in truckloads of gravel the next day just to cover the spill up. Um, the sinister accident happened, or the wreck, I shouldn't call it an accident, um, the whole town should have been evacuated right then and there until they knew more details and what was going on. How have your three granddaughters, beyond the health effects, how have they been affected by this? Mentally, it is very challenging. They break down and cry just about every other day. Um, They want to be back in their home. They want to be with their cousins that they saw every day for their whole lives until now. This is the longest we've been away from the my other three granddaughters, and it's heartbreaking because they're like all like sisters, and they just want their lives back. Greg, if you could talk directly to Norfolk Southern or state or federal government officials about cleanup and testing, what would you, what would you tell them? I would ask them to please get everybody out of town until this is completely cleaned up and all the testing's done independently and through the government, and make sure that the right things are being text, tested for, the dioxones and everything, and then given all clear for people to come back to their homes. That's Greg Masher. He's a grandfather and resident of East Palestine, Ohio. Greg, thank you so much for speaking with us. Uh, thank you very much. Let's turn to Jessica Connard. She's an East Palestine justice community advocate and resident. Jessica, it's great to have you. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. Uh, take us through those first 24 hours. Uh, for for me and my home, uh, we live on the west side. Um, so we're kind of uphill, upwind, upstream. Uh, but that does not mean that we did not get a smell. Uh, for us, it was more of a very... Um, 
chemical chlorine type smell. Uh, it just kind of sticks in your nose. It doesn't matter what you do, you can't get it out. And it was like that for several days, uh, more specifically following um, the, the, the burning of the chemicals. And so in the immediate aftermath of the spill and the derailment, what kind of information were you receiving about the chemicals that had been released and what it might mean for you and your family? Yeah, so we knew that there were some hazardous chemicals that were spilled. We weren't sure how much. Um, I think one of the Norfolk Southern uh, representatives that you know did one of the initial presses said that uh, there was uh, a little bit of oil, which ended up being you know over sixty thousand gallons of uh, lubricant, uh, proprietary blend oil that was spilled, as well as you know a hundred thousand gallons of of hazardous chemicals. You know, one of those including the very famous vinyl chloride. Um, but initially, we we really didn't have very much information at all. Um, we knew that everything it, for us, it seemed like everything was still contained, and we were told that the the rail cars were doing their job, you know, in order to contain uh, the the hazardous chemicals, and that that we were just going to let them burn until um, until everything kind of wrapped up on its own, like the way it was supposed to. And then, you know, the next day, we're hearing that the rail cars are failing to uh, provide the safety that we needed and that there was going to be a release of those chemicals and um, that they were going to just light light up the town, basically. I think anyone who hasn't experienced this, it, it can be difficult to understand how the communication around something like this changes over time. So those first 24 hours, it sounds like there were lots of questions, but not a great deal of of concern but when did that when did that start to shift for you? Yeah, it, you know, initially so the train runs behind my home. It was on fire when it passed by my home. Uh luckily we had the curtains closed because I think that could have been a very traumatic thing for me and my young children. Um you know, in the days following, it it was not uh, apparent really what was happening. We knew that there was a large fire. We knew that the people closest to the derailment um were advised to evacuate. You know, they put out the one mile radius, which, you know, there were different uh, diagrams that were available. Um, So people weren't really sure who was supposed to evacuate. But uh, my family decided to evacuate the day that that Monday, uh, the day that they did the controlled release just for a few hours, just because we weren't really sure what to expect. And there wasn't a whole lot of information available. Um, But when we came back a couple hours later, it was this big kind of like alien tornado. You couldn't really tell if it was coming from the sky or coming from the ground, um, but it was uh, pretty serious and and um, and eerie in that moment. I want to bring another voice to the discussion. Taylor Popolars, a Spectrum News Washington reporter focusing on Ohio. Taylor, thanks for joining us today. Great to be with you, Jen. Thanks. And also with us is Andrew Welton, a professor of civil, environmental, and ecological engineering at Purdue University. He's also the director of the Center for Plumbing Safety. Andrew, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. We also invited the Federal Environmental Protection Agency and the Ohio EPA to join the conversation. They each declined to make someone available. Andrew, you've done your own testing in East Palestine, which we'll get into. But what official testing has been done so far? Well, since the disaster on February 3rd and the compounding disaster on the 6th of February, uh, agencies have been deploying air testing devices, collecting water samples of creeks, soil, and going inside people's homes to do certain types of uh, sampling and analysis. 
And when you talk about the disaster on the 3rd and the compounding disaster on the 6th, just lay out what you mean by that. So on February 3rd, when the train derailed, there was PVC resin that caught on fire. So when you burn plastic, you create all sorts of different chemicals. And that was the beginning of what happened. Uh, That was an emergency, and then it transformed into a disaster when uh, officials uh, decided to uh, ignite and explode the vinyl chloride and other compounding materials that were present on the 6th. So you you laid out the official testing that's been done so far. What have they found in terms of safety? Well, I would say that uh, initially the responders and agencies did the right thing to try to evacuate as many people as possible, um, but uh, they didn't have the evacuation area wide enough. And so people uh, that we talked to outside the evacuation zone got sick, got rashes, and in those people, you know, were, were impacted um, from a health standpoint. Today, uh, and if you look on Norfolk Southern's website, the, the air is safe, the water is safe is the common refrain. Um, but the fact of the matter is the testing hasn't blanketly showed that to be true. And that's primarily because questions that need to be answered haven't been asked yet and answered. Well, you were in East Palestine two weeks ago testing the environment. What were some of your key findings? So two weeks ago, we still saw free product, uh, free floating chemical in the creeks uh, two miles downstream of the spill. And so uh, while a lot of focus has been on the the immediate area where the train derailed, um, there is still liquid, you know, pure chemical moving around the environment. We also know that there's uh, chemicals coming off these highly contaminated creeks and that can cause exposures. Those haven't been documented or evaluated yet. And many people who are in their homes that border these creeks or live in that community are still very um, anxious about the exposures that they've already experienced that cause adverse health effects and potential um, short-term and longer-term health effects that they may experience just by being there. So, Andrew, what are those questions that still need to be asked? Well, after disasters, uh, whether they be chemical spills or wildfires, uh, the first question you need to ask is, what chemicals should we be looking for? The next chemical uh, question you need to ask is, where do they go? What do you, how do you return your infrastructure or homes to safe use? And then what are the chemical exposures? And what we've seen looking through government testing data is that some of the agencies are testing for some chemicals, but not all of them, in different media. So the U.S. EPA is testing for certain things in air. Ohio EPA is testing for certain things in contaminated creek water. But the health department's not actually testing for the same chemicals in the drinking water. And so you have a bunch of different agencies running in different directions, not actually aligned in what they're supposed to be doing. Andrew, if you were a resident of East Palestine right now, how would you feel? How safe would you feel in the town? Well, I would uh, be upset, I'll tell you that, uh, having gone in with a team and done sampling and then myself getting sick, I was pretty um, flabbergasted by the statements coming out by agencies and the fact that I got sick. Then I found out that other people got sick. Uh, Pennsylvania Senator Mastriano and his chief of staff got sick just visiting the area. Uh, Colleagues at the CDC got sick visiting the area. And so a number of households have told me also that they got sick when going back to work. There were two employees that were in the municipal building downtown near one of the heavily contaminated creeks that got sick. Like There's something there. And the data that is being presented to the community does not represent what is happening. 
And so I think that's an issue that needs to be rectified and agencies need to course correct in how they're testing and sampling to answer very specific questions. Taylor, last week, Baltimore blocked shipments of waste from East Palestine from the spill um, as it was headed to a facility to be processed. And last month, Oklahoma also blocked any toxic waste from being brought into the state. Explain what's happening. What people may not realize is Norfolk Southern is in charge of the cleanup and they are in charge of locating licensed facilities around the country who they can sign contracts with to say, hey, we're going to bring this contaminated soil or this contaminated wastewater to your licensed facility. What's been what the roadblock has been that local and state governments and other states have been saying, no, we're not interested. We, we don't feel safe bringing it because as all the other guests have been outlining, it's still not necessarily clear what hazardous material has been released into the area and what the impacts of it could be. Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio, Republican, he told me that Michigan has also been saying no to things, and that's really been delaying the process of removing all of this waste. I checked, and this past Monday, the Governor Mike DeWine's office released, they've been releasing statistics each day, and there's still over 20,000 tons of contaminated soil waiting to be removed from the derailment site. They have been able to remove another 14,700 tons of that soil, plus 10 million gallons of the liquid wastewater. But it gives you an idea of just how much is still there. And because some of these state governments and local governments are resistant to it, That's what's bringing the federal government in. And the EPA administrator, Michael Regan, has said the federal government may have to issue criminal referrals to to the states if they're not willing to do what what is their legal obligation of receiving this waste if they have the licensed facilities for it. But when you're in East Palestine, it's, it's a pretty stark reminder of just how long the cleanup process is going to take because you still see this giant pile of soil and you still see workers every single day trying to remove things while they're in protective gear, but while everyone else in the community trying to go about their daily life. Well, and and Taylor, for for people listening in states, some of the states you just mentioned, like Michigan, who are thinking, wait a second, what does it mean to process this toxic waste where I live? Can you give us some insight into that? So what the government has outlined, at least throughout this process, is that in every state, there are what's called licensed facilities that can accept certain types of hazardous waste when accidents happen, be it be it a train derailment or something else. And what happens is when a company, i.e. in this situation, Norfolk Southern, is involved and has an accident, they have to connect with these facilities and say, hey, here's what we're talking about. In this case, it's contaminated soil. In this case, it's contaminated wastewater. And Norfolk Southern is writing a contract that these licensed facilities sign on to and saying, okay, we can transport this to you, and that way it can be contained in a properly licensed facility and then can be tested, then can be properly disposed of. And what the EPA at the federal level is arguing is that states have these licensed facilities for these situations, and there's a legal obligation there for these states to open their doors and say, we have the facility, you can bring the stuff over. But I think because, at least from what Ohio's lawmakers have told me, because of all the headlines that have stemmed from East Palestine, and it's become a rare train derailment story that's gotten national attention, a lot of state and local governments in other states are feeling kind of spooked by the idea of accepting this waste, even if it can be properly stored in one of these licensed facilities. Andrew, how concerning is it to you to know there's still tons and, and gallons of contaminated waste that have yet to be processed? Well, that, that is a problem, uh, and that's a solvable problem. 
Uh, so initially when I was there, uh, the, there was no liners. There was nothing on the ground really protecting the rain from coming down on top of the heavily contaminated soil. We were in people's backyards who let us in, and, and we could see it maybe 50 feet away. And, um, and so since then, agencies have forced Norfolk Southern to do different things, um, but it's kind of been um, kind of meandering approach to it. It hasn't been very direct in, in enacting. So uh, the material needs to get out of there. They need to remove the soil. They need to remove the heavily contaminated water. Um, and that's going to help reduce the potential longer-term impacts to the community. Jessica, what are you hearing from other residents about the ongoing cleanup efforts and, and physically how they're feeling? Yeah, I think people are still really confused. We really don't have any um, clear guidelines as to when things are going to be um, removed. Uh, everything is really still just kind of sitting over there. Um, we do have a few people that have done uh, some very excellent drone coverage because you really can't make it over there unless if you live over there um, or you're working over there. Um, I think one of the things that you know really needs to come to light is how long is the assistance center going to be open? Um, you know, we need a little bit more clear guidelines on what they are reimbursing. Uh, it and, and just explain what that is. Basis. The assistance center. Yeah, so- Yeah, the Norfolk Southern Assistance Center um, has been a place where people can go and get reimbursement for uh, their relocation, um, for other expenses like food and things like that if they do live uh, close to the derailment and feel that they are not safe. Um, So people will go and take their receipts and then they'll get reimbursed. Um, But there's really no clear guidelines as to, you know, what they're reimbursing. So while some people are having good experience with it, others might not. Not be depending on who you get that day because there's really not any any criteria that you can look up. Um, and for those, uh, you know, like uh, Mr. Masher, who is uh, relocated in a different state, you know, he would have to drive all the way to the assistance center to get that reimbursement. Um, and so there's not an online option either. Um, so it has been a struggle for some people. Um, you know, I think we really need to focus on medical monitoring. I know Governor DeWine is working with East Liverpool City Hospital um, to put a clinic in, but we still have no guidelines um, as far as what tests are going to be done or any details um, of that. So, you know, I think until we stop having symptoms, um, I think people are still going to be very cautious about coming into town. But you know, hopefully the, the chemicals will continue to disperse, but um, we, we just still have a lot of unanswered questions. Um, one of the ones being, you know, where did the plume go? Uh, we, we, all, we need to test all of those who are impacted. So it's not just East Palestine, right? It's New Waterford, Negley, Columbiana, Ohio, uh, Darlington, Beaver Falls, PA, you know, those types of areas as well. So I know a lot of the focus has been on East Palestine because that's where it happened. But, you know, there were a lot more people impacted and and we need to remember those people as well. You mentioned this reimbursement process through Norfolk Southern for for the expenses of relocation or or food or what have you. But what about for people who maybe don't have a great deal of cash up front to relocate? Is it more difficult for people who are on the lower end of the income spectrum? 
Absolutely. And uh, I believe, you know, East Palestine, most of us are, uh, 60% of us are below the poverty guideline. And, you know, a lot of, uh, that we do have a lot of shut-ins and, and people that aren't really able to relocate, their homes are designed specifically to meet their medical needs. In some circumstances, they have done some preloaded cards. But again, it's hard to know what the criteria is for that. We're discussing the lessons we're learning from the East Palestine train derailment and chemical spill. We'll be back with more after this short break. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Let's get back to the conversation with this email from Sue in Pennsylvania, who says all trains transporting hazardous material file a disclosure report before they travel. I would also suggest that there should be a restricted number of cars per train that are permitted to transport hazardous chemicals at one time. Uh, Taylor, is there any discussion of, of policy changes after this derailment? Yes, there's actually been a lot, both at the state level and at the federal level. The state level, some action has already been taken. Just as recently as last week, Governor Mike DeWine signed a a big transportation budget into law, over $13 billion that included various rail safety measures that state lawmakers put in after this derailment happened. It would increase requirements for what's called wayside detectors on the railroads that help detect when a piece of equipment might be malfunctioning. It would also mandate a two-person crew on each freight train in Ohio. When you jump up to the federal debate over legislation, that two-person crew rule is one of the sticking points. There's a bill in the U.S. House of Representatives that a bipartisan group of Ohio lawmakers has introduced. It's called the Rail Act. And in the U.S. Senate, there's a separate bipartisan bill introduced by Ohio's two senators called the Railway Safety Act. Both have a lot of similarities in terms of establishing new safety standards, new oversight, basically increasing regulations on the railroads, but the Senate bill would do what Ohio lawmakers wanted and would require two-person crews on each train federally, but the House bill does not include that. And Congressman Bill Johnson, who's a Republican who represents East Palestine, he's the sponsor of this bill in the House, he told me that was not included because it would not be able to pass the Republican-led House right now. So there's a debate, and it's interesting to see kind of where things stand, because there's a bipartisan consensus that something should be done, but there's an acknowledgement that because Democrats can control the Senate and Republicans control the House, especially when you're talking about imposing new regulations on a powerful industry that has a lot of lobbyists in Washington, D.C., they they have to figure out what can actually get through both chambers. Well, here's a message we got from Calvin in Colorado. I worked in the field of hazmat for over a decade, and I've actually done a couple of train derailments as part of that. And 
One of the things that really struck me about train derailments that's distinct from other chemical spills is that the railroad's motivation is typically just to keep the trains moving. They uh, they will literally respond, put the rail bed back together and leave and let the chips fall where they may to whatever local municipality is impacted. It's really kind of sad and kind of sickening, to be honest, but uh, that's been a part of their culture for a while and I don't see that changing. Taylor, when we look at how Norfolk Southern is operated in recent years, what are people saying about the culture of the company and, and their practices and what may have led to this derailment? The safety record, when you look at it, is honestly not impressive. But there's also a broader conversation taking place, especially in Washington, just about the fact that on average, there's 1,000 train derailments a year across the United States. Norfolk Southern is one of the big names, so they're often associated with it. But this is something that's happening over and over again. What's been interesting is lawmakers are wanting to hold Norfolk Southern accountable, and they're calling for the company to endorse these various pieces of legislation to basically invite new regulations. But the CEO, Alan Shaw of Norfolk Southern, he's testified in several hearings so far and has said he wants to help and that East Palestine won't be abandoned, but hasn't necessarily committed to what lawmakers and what residents are asking for. And I was in East Palestine just yesterday and residents told me that they feel abandoned, basically where things stand right now, two months out, not only from Washington, but also from Norfolk Southern, despite the fact that that assistance center is still open, despite the fact that some people are getting reimbursed for their cost of living expenses but they don't feel like actual change is being made to prevent this from happening again and to have a system in place to kind of help people once something happens. I mean, Jessica, how are you and other residents balancing what it means to be home, right? East Palestine, as you said, you've invested in your homes. You you have this sense of community there. People don't want to leave home, but at the same time, there is this concern about your health and the the longer-term exposure and what you don't know and what you don't know might turn up in 10 years. How are you all balancing that? Yeah, I mean, it certainly is a balancing act. I mean, there are absolute divisions between, you know, the town, the people that think everything's okay, the people that think everything's not okay. And then there's, you know, people like me that I'm, I'm really just searching for the truth. And um, I know that there are some people that are sick and some people that are, are thriving. And so, you know, I think the balance is, is tough. It's hard when you have a, a, a division like that in such a small community. Um, you know, I, I hope that we can uh, create some sense some sense of unity moving forward and be able to work together. We have a lot of different committees. Um, but again, I don't want to unify it so much that we we lose um, our traction because I think that we need to, to move forward as a community. We need to have different faces um, and different commu- different. Um, collective organizations, organizations moving forward um, with the same message. And again, I think most of that has been health-related um, and, and economic-related as well. Andrew, remind us about the health effects of the chemicals spilled and the derailment, but also what happened or what was potentially released as a result of that controlled, that so-called controlled explosion. Well, the the chemicals that were released into the environment are not necessarily meant for human contact. And uh, when you're exposed to many of these different chemicals or the mixtures, you can have acute health impacts. You can have nausea, headaches, uh, vomiting, ear, nose, and throat issues. And, And so that's the 
immediate concern, these acute immediate health impacts. Um, when the officials lit on fire the uh, vinyl chloride, there were also fires of PVC resin and some of the oils were on fire. And so those contained thousands of other chemicals that were released also into the environment and atmosphere. Some of those chemicals found their ways to people's homes, uh, found their ways to their properties, and, and spread out across the area. So it's, it's a complex disaster in a sense that uh, while making the decision to light chemicals on fire was known and predictable, all the consequences of that uh, were, did not seem to be well thought out, and officials need to up their game in terms of testing. Taylor, the Ohio Department of Natural Resources estimates that more than 43,000 animals died within three weeks of the chemical spill. These are mostly fish and amphibians. There's also an agricultural industry in East Palestine. How are people feeling about the safety of crops and livestock right now? There's a lot of uncertainty. I've had conversations with officials with the Ohio Farm Bureau who have set up informational sessions in East Palestine for those who work in agriculture in the area and to try to answer questions about a lot of the unknowns. But but a lot of folks in this region, you know, even if they're not full-time farmers, they have large pieces of property. They might have chickens. They might have other, you know, animals that they take care of. And many of them have lost some of their livestock. And it's been concerning for them to watch, not only because they were either close with those animals or utilized them each day for food, but because they're like, okay, if the, if the animals are getting sick and dying, what does that mean for me and my family? For farmers, there's a big conversation about what the future of their, their property value is going to look like and whether or not the far- farming will be sustainable, not only for you know the next few years, but generationally. A lot of people who live in this area have lived there for a long time. It's multi-generational and they feel very connected to the land they feel very connected just with with the environment. And so there's a lot of concern there. From the Ohio Farm Bureau side of things, there haven't necessarily been concrete answers yet in terms of what the the short and long-term impact is going to be. But there's definitely been an effort and officials both locally, statewide, and federally are recognizing that there's going to have to be attention paid to this moving forward to make sure the agricultural side of things feel heard and are not kind of lost in the mix of all of this. Because when you're talking about people trying to find shelter and find clean drinking water, you might not automatically think of, oh, I wonder how the farmers are doing, but they play a big role in this equation too. Jessica, I want to give you the last word here. What do you want lawmakers, our listeners, Norfolk Southern, to know about East Palestine? Norfolk Southern has taken my freedoms away, the freedom to watch my kids play in the backyard, swim in the pool, fish in the pond. And ultimately, they've taken the freedom to live in a safe community away And we just want that back. That's Jessica Connard. She's an East Palestine justice community advocate and resident. Also with us, Taylor Popolars, a Spectrum News Washington reporter focusing on Ohio, and Andrew Welton, a professor of civil, environmental, and ecological engineering at Purdue University. Jessica, Taylor, Andrew, thank you for your time today. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. This is 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. 
Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and T-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash NPR and use code NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR.